0: We live in a guilt-free world. The prevailing notion is that I'm okay and you're okay. In fact, it's by many thought to be psychologically unhealthy, to feel guilty about anything, or to fail, or come in second place. That's just not considered good for our self-esteem, for our psychological, mental health. And so there is an active movement, really, in our society at least, to try to do away with the notions of guilt and guilt feelings. I read, um, oh, I don't know, some time ago, that in certain school systems, they don't allow the children to play dodgeball anymore on the playground. Because the kids feel bad when they get knocked out of the game, and they're not you know they have to go stand on the side, and so that's not healthy, and so no more dodgeball or uh, and this is a this is true from my own experience. a number of years ago we went to a school board meeting you know, with the parents and so forth, and they were talking about a new way of grading this was in elementary school, and they were going to do away with the letter grades a, B, c, D, F, and they were going to substitute some titles like turtle or rabbit, I don't know what it was, some, some other goofy thing that they were going to put. And the reason they wanted to do that is so that the kids would not feel bad when they didn't do well. You know, if they got a D or an F, that would make them feel bad. And so if they were just a, you know, a hiker or a climber or a turtle or whatever it was they were going to do, then they wouldn't feel so bad. And I remember leaning over and telling Carol, in fact, in my typical stage whisper so that parents all around me could hear that, I said, if a kid fails, he ought to feel bad. Because later in life, when he gets a job, if he fails, he's going to get fired. And then he's going to really feel bad. So he ought to know that failure is unacceptable. But that's just not the way we do it, right? Now, everybody gets a trophy who participates. Not just the team that comes in first, but everybody. And not just the best player on the team, right? Everybody on the team gets a trophy. And when everybody gets a trophy, the trophy is worth nothing. That's exactly right. And that's kind of the silliness side of it, isn't it? But there's, there's a serious side to the no guilt mentality. Some number of years ago, they instituted what they call no-fault divorce. No longer did you have to go into court and establish the fact that your spouse had been unfaithful to you and had broken the marital vows. You could just kind of go in and say, It's nobody's fault, but we just don't love each other anymore. And that was all that was sufficient to violate and break the marital bond. And, of course, divorce rates have skyrocketed in such a climate. No longer do some churches preach about sin. Instead, they preach about weaknesses or they, they preach about mistakes. No, Jesus came to die on a cross to save you from your mistakes. Which, if you think about that, that's a kind of drastic solution to a mistake. Why can't you just say you're sorry and your mistake is over? Why does somebody have to die for a mistake? But that's the world in which we find ourselves. Our culture has become so psychologized that it's, it's considered unhealthy to feel guilty. People go to therapists to, to deal with the feelings of guilt to make them go away. But beloved, uh, guilt and the accompanying feelings of shame is a good thing. Now I say that and some of you are thinking, what? It just shows you how psychologized we've become. Guilt and its accompanying feelings is a very good thing. It is the psychological equivalent of the pain reaction when you touch a hot stove. God has so formed your body that you know you put your finger on that hot stove, right, and you recoil from it. The feelings of guilt feelings, the shame that comes when one is guilty, is the is the psychological equivalent of the pain reaction. It is, it is the work upon our conscience that draws us back from whatever it was that made us guilty. It's a good thing. I mean, and we probably ought to just establish, I guess, the difference between guilt and guilt feelings because they're not the same. Guilt is, a, is an objective condition or state that a person finds themselves in when they have violated a law they are guilty. They may or may not feel guilty. There are some who have been convicted in courts of law, of course, and, right, and on their way out the door, they're continuing to maintain their innocence in the whole matter. So being guilty doesn't necessarily produce guilt feelings. That's, a, that's the accompanying internal work upon your conscience that goes with being guilty. But these are things that God has wired into us as a means for our own health and safety. To to diminish them or to try to eliminate them undercuts the whole work of the gospel. I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ only makes sense if you understand guilt. They said to, to die for to for cover up somebody's mistakes, that's silly. It's more than silly. It's tragic. But to die to atone for someone's guilt, now that begins to make some sense. So we need guilt. God has established guilt. And a proper presentation of the gospel requires guilt. I've entitled this message this morning, Whatever Happened to Guilt? Whatever Happened to Guilt? Open your Bibles up to John 16. Jesus is talking here. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning, continuing in the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus is going to be addressing the issue of guilt. Not in some passing way, like it's some sort of a psychological problem that needs to be dealt with. In fact, what he's going to do here is he's going to say that the ministry of the Spirit of God is a ministry of guilt production. That God himself... Is intimately involved in the process of guilt establishment. We'll see how he develops that here momentarily, but just to, to remind you, we've just come through the section at the end of John 15 where Jesus has very clearly told his disciples there's only 11 left now here in the upper room, right? Judas is gone, he's on his way off to get the, the authorities to come back and arrest Jesus. Only a short time left. Jesus is giving them final instructions, and he has gone through a lengthy process of of describing the opposition that is going to come to them. And he said, Up until now, I have been your buffer. Opposition has been centered in me. I am the one who has received the persecution. But that's going to change. I am leaving, and when I leave, it will come to you. Don't be surprised when it comes. As intense as it's been on me, it's going to be that and more on you. They can't get to me anymore, so they're going to get to me through you. That's what he tells them. But don't worry, he says. I'm not going to leave you alone. I am sending another comforter, right? he's told us that over in, in, uh, earlier in the discourse. I'm sending the helper or the comforter to you. And here in verses uh, 26 and 27 of chapter 15 he gives an outline of one of the ministries of that comforter. He says the opposition to you is going to be intense whoever hates me hates my father and they hate me they're going to hate you. But your your job is not to run and hide your job is to be a witness to the world just like I have been. You're going to take my witness which has been been uh confined to the small land of Palestine, and you're going to blow it out worldwide. But you're not alone in that, because as he says in verse 26, when the helper comes, the paraclete whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. You will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So I'm sending you out into the world to do what I've not yet been able to do, that is bring the message of the kingdom to all mankind, But I'm not sending you alone. I'm sending you into the teeth of the lion, accompanied by the helper, the paraclete, and his ministry will run alongside of yours, and it'll be a ministry of witness. You will witness of me. He will witness of me. Well, what will he witness? What will be the witness of the ministry of the paraclete? Well, let's read the text and find out. Beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where you're going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because you do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ministry of the Spirit in conjunction with the witnessing ministry of the disciples is a ministry of conviction. In fact, what Jesus tells us here is that there is a threefold indictment that the Spirit will bring to the world. We will see this threefold indictment this morning so that we will be drawn to Jesus Christ. So that we will understand the purpose and ministry of the Spirit as He helps us in our witness. Now, there's kind of transition here in verses 4, really through uh, verse 7. Jesus is continuing to deal with their agitated state of mind. Right, he says at the end of verse 4, I didn't tell you these things up front because I was along with you. You know, I'm leaving you now, so I need to tell you these things. And you're so agitated and you say to mine, you don't, you don't even, you're not interested in where I'm going. That's what he tells them. Earlier, Peter had said, well, where are you going? And, of course, Jesus launched into going to the Father's house. But, but Peter was really only interested in a passing sense. He wasn't, he wasn't really interested. The disciples right now are so filled with sorrow, verse 6, That they are thinking only of themselves. They're they're kind of hearing, but they're not hearing at the same time. And we can understand that because similar things have happened to us. When when grief comes upon us in a heavy way, we we kind of hear, but we don't hear, right? We kind of hear the words, but we don't really process the, the meaning of them. And that's kind of what's going on here, I think. So Jesus continues to tell them, listen... I'm going away. I'm I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the helper to you. I'm I'm telling you these things now because I am going away and and I'm continuing to repeat them because sorrow has so overwhelmed your heart, you're not listening to me. Verse 7, it's going to be to your advantage that I'm leaving. See that, verse 7? Tell you the truth. Tell you the truth, it's, it's to your advantage that I go away. How? How is it to their advantage that he goes away? I mean, you would think, wouldn't you, that the son of the living God, second person of the Godhead, amongst you and with you, wouldn't that be your greatest advantage? Wouldn't you think if Jesus were ministering alongside you that that would be the greatest advantage you could have, you know, going door to door? Wouldn't you like to do that? Huh? Huh? You guys who are doing the uh, evangelism training here early on Sunday mornings, right? Jim Wine's working with you. Jim, what if you could promise that one of them, each time they went out, Jesus would go with them? That would be great, wouldn't it? We'd probably get more people to volunteer, wouldn't we, Dennis? <laughs> but you know, as Jesus said, here, it's to your advantage, I'm going away. What's he talking about? I mean, your job is to witness, 1526... Your job is to bring the message to the world. And, and I'm telling you that when I'm gone, it's going to be better. It's to your advantage. By the way, Jesus is not the only one to um, to tell them it's or say that it's to his advantage that he leaves. It's interesting over in chapter 11. It's just kind of a sidetrack. Don't go there. But Caiaphas, when, uh, when the uh, Sanhedrin are are just overwhelmed by the miracles of Jesus, and most specifically the raising of Lazarus. And they're, they're saying, what are we going to do with this guy? Everybody's falling after him. And, and Caiaphas says, you guys don't know anything. It's to your advantage that one should die so that one man might die instead of the whole nation perish. Now, Caiaphas, of course, was thinking about it in a different angle, right? He's going to kill Jesus. But Jesus says the uh, same thing. My death, my going away is to your advantage. Look well, you know at the verse how is it to your advantage for if i don't go away the helper will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you wow that means jim that uh, when you uh, when we go out door to door it's not just a lottery to see who gets jesus to go with them right One person gets Jesus, everybody else is on their own. Now, Jesus says, when I go away, I will send the promised one, the Spirit, right? Ezekiel 36, he will dwell in you. He is the paraclete, another like unto me. Now, Jim, when we go out, everybody has God with them. Isn't that amazing? You no longer go out as a witness to the world on your own. You don't have to face the hostility of the world by yourself. The Spirit of God resides in you. That's to your advantage. Beyond that, Jesus in His incarnate state could only be one place at a time, right? He was here or he was here. But when he goes and sends his spirit, his ability to minister in the world does what? goes everywhere his people are. Think about his his ministry in Palestine. He didn't really have very many converts. Just a small movement. He dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He appears to his disciples. He leaves them 40 days later at Pentecost. The Spirit comes and indwells them as he's promised. And what happens to the church? Wow! It goes everywhere. Just like that. It just grows. It's likely that Peter's first sermon made more converts than Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? It's to your advantage that I leave you. Because if I don't leave you, then the Helper will never come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, verse 7. And then he will accompany you in your ministry, 1526. Which is to witness to the kingdom to all the world. You're not alone anymore. Spirit of God will accompany you, and He will witness. Verse twenty-six, right? He will bear witness of me into verse twenty-six. So, exactly in what sense does the Spirit of God bear witness? What is his ministry? Verse 8. Right? When he comes. Notice it says, and he, when he comes. See that? That's just to make absolutely sure you understand that this, the Spirit of God is a, is a he. He's a person. He's not a force. Okay? It's not like the force be with you and you know, now you go out you have the midichlorians in you or whatever that foolish stuff is. Right? You know, a little midichlorian meter and we can tell who's spirit-filled. It is, he is a person and he will indwell you. And when he comes, he will preach. And what will be the content of his preaching? Look at it, verse 8. It is a threefold indictment. he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oof. That sounds like guilt. That sounds like it's all about guilt. Sin, righteousness, judgment. What happened to peace, happiness, and prosperity? What happened to, you know, come to Jesus and your life will be good? That's not the ministry of the Spirit, at least not the way Jesus articulates it. When he he comes, he will convict The world. the uh, The word translated "convict" here is is an interesting word. It has really kind of a semantic range of meanings. It's used eighteen times in the New Testament, and it does mean "convict" clearly. But it also carries with it the idea of expose, or blame, or reprove, or convince, or prove guilty all kind of bound up in that word. I, I think you, you, if you want to summarize, it's a good way to summarize this, this word. Alegko is the Greek word, but the, the way to summarize it is to show someone their sin, clearly establish their guilt, and then call upon them to repent. That's what's all bound up in that word. Because the idea behind this word is to show someone their guilt, make them guilty, establish their guilt both objectively and subjectively and then call upon them to turn from it you can see for example the word is used over in John 8 just look back here John 8 verse 46 Jesus says to them in John 8:46 which one of you convicts me of sin What Jesus is saying to the authorities is, which one of you can establish my guilt and then call on me to turn from it? Of course, the answer was no one, right? The Son of Man was innocent. But that's the the idea bound up in this word. That's important to understand. That the, the ministry of the Spirit of God here is a... Is a witnessing ministry as a guilt-based ministry. It is making people guilty. In fact, the um, Spirit of God uses the Word of God, right, that He has inspired, and He uses that word, the preaching of that word, witnessing of that word, really to assault the conscience. Of the world, he brings his word that he has inspired to bear, and we'll look a little more at that next week and beyond. We talk about the ministry of the Spirit further, but he uses his word to drive home upon people's conscience the fact that they are guilty. That they are guilty. Now, people can respond to the to their guilt in one of two ways, can't they? I mean, you can respond to guilt by um, falling on your face, by acknowledging your guilt, by confessing your guilt, by, by turning from your guilt. The other way to respond to your guilt is to, is to resist it and to harden your heart. See, that's why I spoke earlier. I said there's really, we want to be careful there's guilt and there's guilt feelings. The ministry of the Spirit, I'm going to look at again a little more closely here as we go, establishes guilt objectively. He also presses it upon people subjectively. And it is their response to the subjective pressing of the guilt that the Spirit does that determines whether they'll come to faith or not. When they feel it, the shame, the dirtiness, the guilt, feelings... They can can respond in one of two ways. They can fall down in repentance or they can stiff-arm it and push it away. That's what happens. But his ministry remains. He convicts the world of guilt. He summons them to turn from it. Maybe I can illustrate this for you. Some years ago, I was speaking to a fellow happens to be a neighbor of mine. And uh, he had early on established the fact with me that he was an atheist. That's what he told me. And he didn't want to talk about Christianity. And so uh, I didn't talk to him about it for a while and then became uh, feeling guilty about the fact that I hadn't talked to him about it. And I guess I could have responded in one of two ways, right? I could have <laughs> stiff-armed it and said, Lord, you know he doesn't want to talk about it, or I could have talked to him. And so I decided that day, I summoned up my courage. I'm not a brave man. I summoned up my courage to go out and do a dress with him. And he was out in the yard, and and, uh, he was working, and I went out to kind of saddle up and get a conversation going here. And so I launched in. And uh, he responded back with some hostility, and I pushed back, and and, uh, the next thing I know, he he walked off into his garage and grabbed a pair of hedge clippers and and he came out and he started chopping the hedge. (laughs) And I was standing there and I was thinking, whoa, (laughs) he really wants to chop me. But there's enough civility left that he's refraining. And I thought, whoa. He chopped for a little bit and then he put them down and he said, "Uh, these hedges are overgrown, they need to be cut. And he kind of walked off. You see, the Spirit of God had used the Word of God to begin to push home the guilt. And his response was to push back, push it away. Verse 8 again. He, that Spirit, when he comes, he's going to convict the world. He's going to convict them of three things, right? Sin, righteousness, judgment. Jesus elaborates it here beginning in verse nine concerning sin. And notice the word is singular, sin, not sins, plural. You see that? Because it's it's really not a behavioral issue. It, it is not, it is not a, a problem with what people do or say. That's not their real problem. That's merely a symptom of the disease. The disease is the state of a person's soul. That's why it's sin singular. He convicts the world with regard to the state of their soul. Now, Pastor Vince, when I was out, I understand that he, uh, he really did a fine job presenting the whole issue of the depravity of the human soul. I loved his title. What help I've fallen and I can't get up. wish I had good titles like that. And he did a good job pushing home <laughs> aided by the ministry of the spirit the whole issue of human guilt sinfulness and Jesus says this is what the this is what the witness of the holy spirit is is he establishes the the state of your soul he doesn't it's not so much the the issue of the the stuff on the outside it's the internal corruption and rot that he's dealing with. It's the wickedness and blackness on the inside. Right? It's the corruption, it's the, the internal stuff. Jesus says that it's out of the what come the issues of life. It's out of the heart. The stuff just bubbles up from the inside, comes out. So to, to deal with sin, we, you know, it'd be like trying to take down a tree by knocking the leaves off. It just doesn't work. So dealing with the symptoms on the outside, that's not the issue. Is We've got to get right down to the root of the tree. You know, and the axe is ready at the root of the tree. We're going to whack that sucker right out of there. That's what the Spirit's after. Okay? it's after sin. He's after the internal corruption. By the way, just as a sidelight, this uh, whole issue of, of uh, corruption being internal and not external, it, it has a huge impact on the issue of raising your children. You know, as, a, as parents, it's really easy for us to focus on the outward behaviors, right? If we just get conformity on the outside, that's good enough. But it's not good enough for God. We need to, we need to strive for the conversion of their soul. Not the modification of their behaviors. The Spirit of God is concerned with the inside. So concerning sin here. And then in each of these indictments, by the way, notice uh, there's a a comma. And then Jesus gives an illustration of of the depth of the guiltiness of the people involved. And by the way, he's talking about the world here, right? You convict the world. He's talking about the world of unbelievers, the cosmos, those who are outside of Christ. He will convict them concerning their sin because they do not believe in me. Because they do not believe in me. What he's saying here is that the crowning evidence of their guilt lies in the fact that they reject the Son. The one incontrovertible proof of the depravity of the human heart is that it rejects Jesus Christ. That's the the universal guilt indicator. It is the crowning proof, the state of their soul. Notice he doesn't talk about behavior. You see that? Concerning sin because they break God's law. It doesn't say that. Because the Spirit is not first and foremost interested in the behavior. He's interested in the change of the internal person. And the, and the, the incontrovertible evidence that your internal person is corrupt is that you refuse Jesus Christ. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're refined, intellectually accomplished, or whether you're kind of a blasphemous, you know, derelict kind of person. For those who are refined in the intelligentsia and have their own elaborate systems to refuse Jesus Christ, the blackness of their heart is just as, as, as real as the person who walks around, you know, uh, cursing all the time and living a life of debauchery. The problem is the same. The guilt level is the same. It is, it is the inside problem. Both are guilty of the, of the monstrous crime of cosmic rebellion. They have turned away from God. And the evidence of it is that they refuse Jesus Christ. They do not believe. John says it himself earlier in, in his uh, gospel here. Back to uh, chapter 3. With me. John 3, verses 19 and following. John says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The issue is is that people hate the light, love the darkness. So it is an outward manifestation of the corruptness of their own soul. Go with me uh, to the end of John's Gospel for a minute. Verse uh, 31 of chapter 20. This whole idea that um, that the incontrovertible proof of the state of a man's soul is his refusal to believe in Christ. Just follow this argument with me. John says here in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, right? He gives his purpose for writing this whole gospel. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, by, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I have written this for you that you may believe. There is an an assumption underneath that that says that everything that you need to believe is available where? Here. I have written all that you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. And I have written with an expectation that you will believe. It is the reasonable thing to do. I have given you all that is necessary. I've given you the seven signs. I've given you the extended discourses that surround those signs. I have proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. The reasonable thing to do is to believe. The right thing to do is to believe. The proper thing to do is to believe. But most don't. But most don't. And by their refusal to believe, they establish for all to see their guilt. The ministry of the Spirit uses the Gospel of John to point that out to all the universe in an objective sense, right? Verdict, judge comes down the gavel, you are guilty. And through the joint preaching, ministry, and empowerment of the Spirit, when we bring the gospel to people, we press it onto their heart to to create the shame within them that they don't believe. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The fact that people don't believe is not due to a, a flaw in the gospel. It is not due to a weakness in the message. It is not due to the fact that, that John left something out. The failure to believe is the illustration and the incontrovertible proof of the wickedness and blackness of your own heart. Well, that's John's opinion. Is it shared by others? Well, notice how the Apostle Paul approaches these things. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul says, and he was a man who was well trained in the art of rhetoric, highly educated, brilliant. He says, when I came to you, I determined, I made up my mind that what I would preach to you is nothing more the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, it was more than those simple statements. There is much theology that comes up underneath it. And if you read Paul's sermons, you see that. But the point of the matter was that he focused on this one issue concerning sin, that they do not believe in me. That's the issue. That's the whole issue. If you refuse Christ, you demonstrate to the world you are guilty. If you receive Christ, you demonstrate to all the world you are guilty. And that you've humbled your heart to receive pardon. But either way, you are what? Guilty. Guilty. I am looking at that elusive clock and thinking, ah, fools go on where angels fear to tread. So the second indictment is lengthy sermons. Now, the second indictment is that you have substituted a false righteousness for the true. Verse 10, John 16 again he convicts the world concerning sin and he convicts the world concerning righteousness. Evidence because the, or excuse me, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. What in the world is he talking about? What he says is that the, the ministry of the Spirit of God with regard to the unbelieving heart is to convict them of the fact that they want to substitute their own righteousness for the righteousness of God. That's it in a nutshell. They want their own form of righteousness. They will not accept the righteousness that God provides. A righteousness that it is demonstrated by the fact that He goes to the Father. What does that mean, goes to the Father? Well, that has all to do with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Right? The vindication of the claims of Jesus Christ has everything in the world to do with his ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory. The fact that he did not die for his own sin, he did not die as a sinner, as the people thought, has everything in the world to do with it. God resurrected him from the dead and drew him to heaven to sit at his right hand. And the world refuses that righteousness and instead seeks to establish their own. That's Paul's charge against the Jews, by the way, over in Romans 10, 3, right? Refusing the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 5 says that your righteousness is like a menstrual cloth. It is a filthy rag. Yet you seek to establish it. You seek to put that forth for the sin of your soul. Now, it has all kinds of different... Paint jobs and you know decorations hanging off of it, but it's all the same thing. It's human works righteousness. You know the great cosmic scale, right? If I do more good things than bad things, when I get to the end, I'm in. The only problem with that is it sort of craters on the on the rock of God requiring perfection, right? That doesn't work. No great eternal you know eternal scales. There's so the whole notion of, you know, if I do the good stuff, that's what it'll take. Or I'll redefine what really is good or what God really requires. Or I'll just give you all of my excuses and please that why it's really not as bad as it is or I really shouldn't be held accountable for it. I mean, after all, you should have seen the upbringing I had. Oh, bad parents and, you know, oh, I grew up in a terrible area. It's all futile. It's all just trying to put forth a filthy rag in the place of the true righteousness of God. And so the ministry of the Spirit is to bring that home that you are guilty of trying to cover the sin of your soul with the works of your hands rather than take the righteousness of Christ. William Barclay in his... Commentary writes the following. He says, When you think of it, it's an amazing thing that man, or men should put their trust for all eternity in a crucified Jewish criminal. Isn't that an interesting way to state it? It is an amazing thing that men will, for all eternity, place their trust in a crucified Jewish criminal. The only way that happens is if they come to understand that it is through the righteousness of that crucified Jewish criminal that they can now stand before God. That requires a work of the Spirit internally. Internally. So the second charge there is you have substituted your righteousness. Third charge. Third charge this morning is that you are... I've said this, your, your judgment is certain. Maybe I should say it this way. You're guilty of thinking you will not be judged. You're guilty of thinking that you're going to get by. That maybe everybody else will get caught, but I will slip through... A crack. You know, I'll hide in the corner, I'll be at the back of the line, and you know, when they call roll, they'll get tired by the time they get to me, and I'll slide in. Or some other crazy notion. Right? That I really won't be judged. But notice how Jesus says the third indictment here is that he convicts the world, the ministry of the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. Evidence? The ruler of this world has been judged. Think of it this way. If God judged Satan, the greatest of the angels, will he not judge you? If the greatest of the angelic beings does not escape the judgment, one who is far more powerful than you or I, if his judgment is certain, is not yours certain as well? Answer? Yes. Yes. You will not escape the judgment. And you are guilty of thinking you will. How does this all play out? Jim, we got a group going to Argentina here in a couple of months. How does all this play out? I mean, if this is theological truth, and it is, how does it play out practically in the, in the witnessing ministry? Again, draw your eyes back to verse 27 of chapter 15, right? Jesus has said that you will bear witness also along with the Spirit who will bear witness. And he has just detailed the kind of witness that the Spirit brings. So by extension, this should speak volumes about the kind of witness we should bring. Under your sermon handout, you know, is that area that box that says topic, in case anyone would decide to file it somewhere someday. This goes under evangelism because this directly impacts the gospel presentation. This should inform our preaching. You know, we, we don't have the authority to just witness whatever it is, however we like. If we want to see the power, the power comes when we lock into what the Spirit is doing rather than trying to work cross-purposes with Him. So turn to uh, Acts chapter 2, and let me just so briefly illustrate for you. We don't need a closing song anyway. Let me, uh, Ron, relax. Let me, um, you can use it next week. Let me briefly illustrate for you that the apostles, you know, when they walked out of this upper room, fortunately, they had by this time stuck a finger in one ear, I guess, because they went in and it stuck. And, uh, you yeah, know, I see all you sitting out here like this, right? So, it informs their preaching. So you, you go to Acts 2. This is the first sermon after, you know, it's the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has come. The prophecy has come true. The Spirit comes. Peter stands up to preach. And what does he say? How does he preach? Well, let's say, look at it. How about the sin of rejecting Christ? Does he address that at all? How about verse 23? This man, that is Jesus, just leave out the clause. We're talking about God's. In this. This man Jesus, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. How do you like that? How does that speak to the issue of not believing in Christ? I'd say it goes right to the core, doesn't it? Not only did you not believe, you crucified him. You crucified him. You're guilty of the sin of rejecting Christ. Secondly, you are guilty of the sin of of trying to establish your own righteousness and rejecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Drop down to verse 31. David looked ahead. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted at the right hand of God. Peter says, listen, David even prophesied of this. He went into the ground, but you did not allow his body to decay, and you raised him to your right hand. Beloved, that is talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his righteousness. So Peter said that you're guilty of the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. You killed him. He says you're guilty of the sin of trying to establish your own righteousness because you have rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ, evidenced for the world by his resurrection and ascension. And third, don't think you're going to get away with this. Do not think you will get away with this. There is judgment coming. Verse 33, second half of the verse the end of the verse here, it says, He that is God has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. He himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And by the way, when he says... um, and he has poured forth, the end of verse 33, that which you both see and hear. You let your eyes go back up earlier in the sermon. And he's talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, Joel 2. And notice, verses 19 and 20, that he specifically lifts out of the day of the Lord prophecy in Joel 2 the issues of signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon into blood. Beloved, those are judgment. Those are judgment expressions. They find their fulfillment in the book of Revelation. He's saying, don't think you're going to get away with this. Do not think you will escape. You have rejected Jesus Christ. You killed him. You have sought to establish your own righteousness rather than than take the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, beloved, it is going to come down upon you in judgment, Peter says. So... What well, was the result of that kind of spirit-empowered witness? Here's a case where the preacher and the, and the spirit locked right together and drove it on home, didn't they? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were what? Pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from apostate Judaism and embrace the crucified one. Be baptized in his name. And 3,000 were saved that day. This is the witnessing ministry of the Spirit. This needs to be the witnessing ministry of the church. When we speak the gospel to someone, we need to not avoid the difficult topics of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is what it means. We need to press home their guilt. And beloved, when you do that, you can expect the kind of hostility that Jesus promises will come to you in the end of chapter 15. If all you're talking about is come to Jesus Christ and your marriage will be better, your kids will behave, you'll probably get a bigger house, and you'll have a lot of fulfillment in life, there'll be no hostility for a message like that. When you press home a message that says that you are corrupt to the core, that you are separated from God and you you evidence your corruption by your refusal to come to Christ, that you think your filthy rags are going to somehow satisfy a holy God, and that you think in your arrogance that you will escape his judgment, then, and only then, will the Spirit move, perhaps converting that person's heart. Before I pray here, let me just remind you, uh, as we try to do every week, there will be some people available over here to talk with you further on spiritual things. If you have questions, counsel, something that's been said this morning that you want to have clarified. Or maybe you want to know, how can I come to faith in Christ? And you come after the service and you receive the help. Let's pray. Our Father God, what a message has been entrusted to us. A message that absolutely cuts directly across the culture in which we live. A culture that would seek to stamp out every aspect of guilt, would seek to define it away, would seek to make excuses, indeed, would seek to slay you. And Lord God, we are not brave people. We confess that we want to be liked, we want to be respected. We do not want persecution and hostility to come upon us, and so our Father, we confess that frequently we soft-sell the message. Frequently, our Father, we avoid the difficult topic. Frequently, we try to find another way, but Lord God, there is no other way. Sooner or later, our Father, I know, we know, that people have to come face to face with their guilt and in repentance turn and flee to the cross of Christ. Lord God, not that we have to walk up to everybody and just bang them over the head first thing out of our mouth, but Lord God, we've got to get to the real issues. Give us courage to do so. Give us faith to believe that this is your way. Let us reflect upon our own conversion and understand it to be true. Let us live faithfully for you, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took away our sin. Amen.